If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Theodore Roosevelt. In the last episode, we talked about T.R. boxing in his youth and in the White House. We talked about his fearless assault on the wrong hill in the Spanish-American War and how he chose to finish his speech with a bullet in his chest because, well, well, he was not coughing up blood. Talk about a low threshold to keep going. And yet, despite all of his advantages, he still had to overcome the death of his mother and his wife in the same day, which resulted in him going to the Dakotas and the bar fight that you're going to hear about in this episode. Here we go. I had thought that my father's death would have to be the hardest thing that I would ever have to deal with in my life, and it wasn't. I married Alice Lee oh, when we were just out of Harvard and set up. We had been married about four years. This is We were living in, in 57th Street with my family, and I was been elected to the 23rd District of the New York legislature. I was in the assembly at the time. Alice had just given birth to Alice. We named our first child Alice. I'd pass around cigars to the gentleman in the New York legislature. And Alice was having a somewhat difficult time, although at the time we did not know it. And again, medicine was even for the 1880s, it was still elementary in so many things. It's, it's hard to recall even now. I got a telegram from Elliot saying, come home right away, mother's dying. And so I, and she had just gotten a touch of pneumonia and other things. Uh, and so I immediately went home and got, a, and had a, got another telegram saying Alice is dying. And so we took the four-hour train trip back to New York City, rushed to the house, and I got there in the early morning hours, and Elliot greeted me at the door and said, there's a curse upon this house. I went in, and I sat with Mother and with Alice until the early morning, maybe more mid-morning, and Unfortunately, my mother passed away early morning, and then I hurried downstairs because four hours later, in the room directly below my mother's bedroom, Alice died. And so both of the number one women in my life passed away on the same day, and it was, that was a very hard thing. It would not have been a good thing for someone to come along at that time and say, well, you had an easy life because you are born into wealth and all this. Right. That, that does not matter in this particular case. And so I was weighed down by their deaths. We had a double funeral, and they were buried on, in Brooklyn's Greenlawn Cemetery. I had written in my diary that, the light had gone out of my life, 
I was determined to finish up some business I had a responsibility for in New York in the state legislature. And then I headed out west and tried to forget so much of what I had gone through. And I think I tried to work it out and to, as I had once said, black care seldom sits behind the rider on a fast horse. So I spent the next few years as a ranchman and a cowboy. And my sister, Bama, Anna, who is probably now the most important person in my life, she took responsibility of taking care of little Alice, our child, from that time. And of course, I would come back to New York and visit and do things. And then I was normally in New York during the winter months or at least some of the winter months. So it was, it's a moment that's hard to really talk about. And certainly in the circle of people was my social circle at the time. These are things you didn't really talk about in public. Even for me to talk to you on this new contraption is very difficult. It's all, almost too public. Whenever something terrible like this happens and I have to bring it up in one of these conversations, I always do because I think that it is important to see that as people, everybody thinks that their problems are the worst. And yes. we don't understand that everybody has that thing that happens to them like this. And most people can't imagine something this bad happening on the same day. And yet, after this, you found a way to recenter yourself. And I think what you were just leading to is that this is where you spent more time in the Dakotas. And of course, after this accomplished all kinds of things, like for the world, for yourself, for your family, for your kids. There was so much that happened after this. But is this right after that happened? Is that when you spent a lot of time in the Dakotas ranching? Well, yes. Uh, I, I was searching. I needed a direction. I thought for a while that I might be a pretty decent author. And indeed, I've written, oh, 40-some books. And, and, and some of them, a few of them are really good and a few are okay. And then a few would put you to sleep very early in the first few pages. Uh, You've written 40 I, books? That's the number, 40? I think it's 46 to be exact, but I sometimes lose count. But yeah, I, I did that and I earned some money from that. I thought for a second I wanted to be a lawyer, but that didn't take too much thinking to realize, no, I don't want to, I don't want to make a living being a lawyer. There, there are better things to do, more important things to do that, uh, that can lead an individual, a fellow on. Uh, and then, of course, I finally decided after being out in the Dakotas, because for a while I was really adamant that I should be a rancher. And I bought a ranch. I bought two, actually, and I bought thousands of head of cattle. And I thought, this is like, because I did li love the life. If I had not gone west into the Dakota Territory, I don't think I would have be become president. So I was really uh, thrilled to be a part of the West. I really felt that this is where I belong. But then uh, I came back and met Edith again, and, and we and married her in December of 86. And, and of course, by then I decided I wanted to be where the real action was, which is Washington. 
and I wanted to be in a position of leadership. And I had thought, even back then, about being president. And there were people who believed that I would be someday, which I'm grateful for. But I, I had to find the path in which to get there, uh, being a colonel and, if I may say, a, a hero of the Spanish-American War, and uh, being a very effective governor of New York State certainly set me on the right path in which I felt if I play my cards right, oh, at that time I thought by 1912 or so that I would be ready to run for the office of president. You know, before we get into the running for president and how being in the Dakotas helped with that, I feel like we're glazing over a few details because it seems like when you end up somewhere, things don't quiet down. They get really loud and stuff starts <laughs> happening. And when you were in the Dakotas, so you buy all these uh, head of cattle and then there's this huge, I hear there's this huge snowstorm that wipes out half of them that you got to deal with. Yeah. And then there were some boat thieves. I don't know anything about this story. I'd love oh, to hear yeah. about that. And then there was this fight that you just mentioned did you get into a bar fight as well? I mean, there was stuff going on out there, right? Yes, it was. And a lot of it is because of my particular philosophy. I always felt that places need to be civilized, that these territories, which were, they were back then, were territories. It would just be a matter of time before they were civilized. But being civilized meant you had to have laws that people could live under and live well and live the life that they chose and that those people who would be considered lawless or a dangerous element to have uh, to society, to civilization, had to be stopped or put away in, in some manner. And so I, I became one of the leading citizens, I believe that's a fair word to use, out in the Dakota, this, this was now it's the state of North Dakota. It was uh, then just part of the Dakota Territory. And that led by being a citizen that was somewhat known and I that could be counted upon for certain things. I think because of that knowledge, it led me into certain situations. And to tell you the truth, I honestly admit I'm not going to be afraid of an of any situation. I'm not going to back down from it. It would go against my philosophy of being a man and doing the right thing by the people that know me. So fortunately for me, Anna was doing a wonderful job helping to raise Alice back in, in New York. And again, I did see the family on a regular basis. I wasn't continually in the Dakotas, but I was out there enough. And at one time, I was going to join a vigilante association to help bring law and order to a lawless area. But I, I had good friends who said, no, Mr. Roosevelt, you're too well known. We don't want you <laughs> to be a, in the vigilantes. Let someone else be the face of it. For they knew that if I got involved with the vigilantes, that at some manner, my name would come out in association with something. So they called upon me for many things, which I was glad to help with, but I didn't get involved with that. There was the time in Mingusville, and 
let me tell you right now that Mingusville, Montana, on the very eastern edge, looked like a Mingusville. I don't know what your idea of a town named Mingusville would look like, but it can't be far from wrong. It basically was just a, a hotel and saloon and a couple of railroad shacks along the way. But it was a spot where cowboys and ranchmen could gather from time to time. I had gone out from my ranch on the Elkhorn Ranch and gone out looking for cattle and some stray horses. I found a couple of the horses and I was going back to the Dakota in Little Missouri. And, uh, but it was cold. It, it gets cold out in the, in the coldest at time, especially at night. Yeah, for sure. I was, I wanted a, a warm bed really, and, and some place to rest and place to stable the horse. And that was at Minkusville. I was there. And, and I, so I decided to stay there. And so I stabled the horses, got them safe. Then I went up to the hotel to see about a bed for the night. But before I did that, I went into the saloon, which was already filled with, oh, 10 or 12 Dakota Territory Cowboys. When I went in, I knew that something was up because I'd heard a couple of gunshots on my way to the saloon, or to the stable, rather. And so I'd, I'd probably put it down to just cowboys being cowboys. I walked into the saloon, and there in front of me, walking up and down, was a, oh, a typical desperado of the territory, and his guns were out, and he was hollering and cursing and all this sort of thing. And I, But I wasn't there for trouble, and I wasn't there to enforce the law. All I wanted was, oh, some sustenance and obviously a bed. There were about eight or nine patrons of the saloon, and they were all kind of smiling that smile one gives trying when they're trying to pretend that something is okay, and it really isn't okay. I didn't think anything of it, but as I walked in, this desperado saw me and immediately took one look at me. Now, you have to realize that I was oh, my mid-20s. I'd toughened up quite a bit. I, I rode in the roundups. I was bronzed. And that, I was tanned. Now, I always like good clothes. I've always done that. So I had on me a kind of sombrero with some fringe on it. I had leather fringed shirt on. I had a Eastern made vest. I had some chaparrales, which were made in really great leather Mexican style. I was a good looking cowboy back then. That's all there is to it. A little dressier than the average cowboy, I'm guessing. Well, that's true because a lot of my clothes came from Brooks Brothers in New York City, <laughs> and it was noticeable. Well, I was going to get a glass of milk, but before I'd gone very far, this desperado says, oh, there's four eyes, and he was talking about my pons nez, the, you know, the glasses that fit on my nose and attached by a string. And, of course, in those days, in those places, wearing spectacles of any sort is sort of a sign of weakness uh, to a lot of people. Oh, I didn't know that. And I kind of ignored it, and I was 
So I looked for a table and a chair, and by the table and the chair that were empty, the chair was next to a stove, which was putting out some comfortable heat. And I was going to go over there and sit down and then get something to drink. As I walked toward the table, he says, Four Eyes is going to buy drinks. Well, the patrons all laughed. I didn't laugh, but I didn't take offense. I wasn't there for trouble or I wasn't there for to prove anything. And he wouldn't let it go. Like a typical bully, like a Dakota desperado, he wouldn't let it go. And I'd dealt with bullies before. I'd run into bullies before. I wasn't going to take offense, but I wasn't going to buy drinks. So I walked over and I pulled the chair out, tur turned it to its side, and I sat down in it. And as I sat down, the desperado comes walking up to me, and it's, it, both his guns are out and pointed. And he said, I said, Four Eyes is going to buy drinks. Well, this time, nobody laughed, including myself. I said, well, and knowing, realizing I'm, I'm dealing with a bully, and he's not going to quit. So I said, well, if I must. And with that, lightning quick, I rose out of the chair I was in, and I gave him a good Harvard right to the jaw. And his head snapped back, and his, his guns went back, and they bullets, they, they shot off, and the bullets went flying by the future president of the United States. Before he recovered, I gave him a good Harvard left to the jaw. And he stumbled backwards and fell against the bar and then slid down and hit his head on the footrail. And he was out cold. The people at the bar gathered around and thought, my goodness. Now they hurled implications upon the guy. They were quite brave when the guy was unconscious. So they were... <laughs> You're yelling these things, and I said, perhaps instead of cursing at him, you ought to take his guns and then lock him outdoors. If there's a shed or some place to lock him up, why don't you lock him up? And they thought this was a capital idea, and they proceeded to do so. Well, as I went to bed that night thinking that I'm going to have to deal with him in the morning. He was a typical bully, and he, he either he was going to run away and leave me alone, or else he was going to come back and try to reclaim his reputation. I did not wish to fight him, but the fact is, I was ready to fight him again if need be. You know, he was just a bully. And bullies have to be stood up to. As luck would have it, he apparently came to during the night, heard the sound of a passing freight train, and decided he didn't want to confront uh, this cowboy named Roosevelt again. and. Apparently, he hopped a freight and headed out uh, somewhere. Heaven knows where. It's lost in history. But that was my little chance in Mangusville. And, of course, that got around the country and changed the way people looked at me. I had a run-in with four Indians who had gotten off their reservation. And we came upon each other. And they did not look as friendly as they sounded. And so I stood, stopped my horse at a distance and waited for their play, so to speak. But I drew my rifle out and they tried to indicate that they were good Indians and that there wouldn't be any trouble. But to tell you the truth, 
I was outnumbered four to one, and I wanted to make sure there wouldn't be any trouble. And I said, well, if they were really good Indians, they'd go on their way because I would go on my way, and, and we did. They, from what I was told, they gave me a good round of cursing when they left, but apparently they didn't want to get entangled any more than I did. And that's a good lesson to learn about how to deal with folks, and things like that got told around the territory. And I think, again, a reputation built someone. And then I think one of the things that really impressed people was that I think it was the second roundup that I was in, the cattle got mixed up, as they do on these roundups, and then you have to separate them out according to their brand. Well, I had a cowboy who came to me with instructions, and he said, Miss Roosevelt, what do you want us to do with these cattle? I said, well, they don't belong to our herd. You turn them loose to this other fellow's herd. The cowboy said, well, I can easily change that brand they have to our brand, and I can do so pretty quick. And I said, get your gear and go get your wages because you're fired. And he was just astounded at that, that I would fire him. He said, I was only trying to help you. Well, you fired me. I'm trying. I said, if a man will cheat for me, then at some point he will cheat against me to that effect. And I said, I do not need your type of help. And I believe I've always tried to, to function with that. In politics, there are people who say they're only trying to help you this way or that way. But I think not often enough people will, they should and they don't. But I think even in politics, people should say, I, I, I don't need your type of help. We don't need to do that. That's not a part of who we are or what I mean to be. And so I, I think, think that sort of thing got around and helped my reputation. Yeah, I think that this is a character. It sounds like it's a character principle of yours. And then you talk about the lessons you learned from your family earlier about being a doer. Are there other yes. mottos or other principles that you live by, maybe things that you repeat to yourself to remember what you stand for that, that come to mind besides some of the ones that we've discussed? Of course, the, probably the most famous one is to speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. That seems to be repeated a lot. And then that's True, especially when I talk about being prepared and things like that. But there's another one that says, do something, get action. And if the action needs to be corrected or it needs maybe go, it is going in the wrong direction, then correct it in the right direction. If you're asked to do something, do it. If you say, I don't know how to do it, well, then learn how to do it and get the job done. If you're uh, given a task and the task seems overwhelming, do, as you said earlier, do the best you can with what you have where you are. I've always thought that was an important model to have. I, I've always liked that a great deal. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'll never forget that one. Hey, this whole concept of speak softly and carry a big stick, I, I think we understand that well.
Now, you don't have to fight right away. It's okay to be diplomatic. Mm -hmm. It's okay to discuss. But eventually, sometimes you got to swing the stick. But is there an actual stick that you made? I have been given several sticks by admirers. I never really made one myself. I think it's important that in, in many instances that people believe that you have a, a stick and that if you need to, you'll use it. I remember, oh, I think it was 1905 and college football had experienced a lot of deaths, too many deaths on the, either the practice or the playing field. I think 23 young men died that year from college football injuries. And I love college football. I think that's a great sport, a manly sport, certainly. But it bothered me that people were seemingly ready and willing to allow such loss to occur. I mean, these were good men who may have contributed something, whether in the field of military or medicine or education or religion. They might have been able to contribute something that meant so much, but they were lost to the country. Something had to be done. So at one point, and I give you a short version of this, I called the presidents of the major football playing colleges like Harvard and Yale and Brown and I think Columbia University. I called, oh, I think there were five or six altogether. We met in the White House, and basically, I informed them, and through intermediaries, helped to inform them that something needed to be done. By golly, get control of this. Set up rules and regulations. Keep these young men healthy and active and a vital part of life. I said, if you colleges won't get together and do this yourself, then I will. And I. I'm not above ending college football. If that's what it takes to save these young men and other young men from the dangers of college football, there won't be any college football. Basically, that's what I said. And the great thing about that is people oftentimes, many times, fortunately for me, they don't know whether I really mean it or can do it or not, but they know if Theodore Roosevelt says that he's going to try it, or he may take that action, by golly, it's not worth challenging to find out. And as luck would have it, these universities got together and created a, oh, let's see, what's that? National Association of College, uh, NCAA is what it's called. It's, that's come along from that association. And again, it's not necessarily because I would do something or have even done it. But that's because the people I was talking to believed that I would do it. Sometimes the threat is enough if you're a serious person. Absolutely. In your lifetime, you have had – there have been so many firsts that you were a part of. You were the – my understanding is you were the first president to drive an automobile, the first president to travel outside of the country as president. And I think that you were the – first American to win the Nobel Peace Prize, which baffles me because <laughs> you were so involved in building up our military 
understanding that there was going to be a war at some time. Those two things, I, I, it's hard to see those two things being together. And did it feel that way to you that you were just always busting through different barriers like that? Was that a goal of yours? I don't think I would be fair in saying that was a goal of mine. That's it, perhaps I would be fair in saying that's the trajectory my life seemed to be on. And it was one that I would, I was quite willing to accept if that's what it meant. I was quite willing to say, pay the piper for a good dance. I was quite ready to back any reforms or challenges that we needed to do in order to keep this country going in the right direction. Some of them worked well, some of them didn't. Uh, there are things that happened that I wish had, had gone in a different direction or perhaps I'd been smarter in handling, but things happen that, well, you do your best you can. That's it's really, that's what it's all about. You do the best you can for the situation you're in. I was the I was not the first president to, to drive a car. I was the first president to ride in a car. I was the first president to go up in an airplane. I was the first president to go down in a submarine. These are dangerous things. They, they had the submarine, the Holland, out in Long Island Sound, and I felt it's important that, perhaps referring back to the Spanish-American War, what type of president would I have been if I had been willing to order sailors to go down in a submarine, and yet I was afraid to go? So I, I had to go. I could not send men where I would be afraid to go. So we went down the first, the first president to go down a submarine. We did go down to Panama in 1906 to see about the digging down there. And I am grateful and happy that some other folks felt that I deserved the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing peace and an end to the Russo-Japanese War. The Japanese, I could admire. They're industrious. They probably brought their nation farther in shorter time than any other nation did in the history of this world. The Russians are an old and tired people but their leadership is so corrupt. I, I really feel that the Russians would rather lie about something than tell the truth. Even if telling the truth was their benefit, I'm just not real happy with the, the Russian government. The Russians really were responsible for so much there. They, would, they lost 300,000 men in that war, and they were quite willing to lose another 300,000 rather than come to the table and end it. I thought the best interests of their people were never in their mind. The Japanese weren't much different in that, in that while they did a credible job in defending their nation against the Russians, they on the other hand were nearly on the verge of starvation in that island. I felt that they were quite willing to let the Japanese people starve and suffer rather than come to the conference table and get this thing settled. But one of the things that I did, and I've done this a, a couple of times, I kind of inferred here and there that it would be too bad if the American Navy, the one that was sitting there in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, those battleships had to be sent over to 
the Pacific in order to help convince Russia and Japan that they needed to settle this. And of course, I, I believe perhaps the Russians and the Japanese didn't need a great deal of convincing the Roosevelt just might send those battleships over there and see what happens. I think they felt because I was Roosevelt that this is something that I wouldn't be above doing, which might bring more harm to them than good. So being the first to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize is, is an honor. Now I have to admit, it wasn't as great an honor as you might think, at least in the eyes of Mrs. Roosevelt. You see, she she heard that the winner of the Nobel Prize gets $25,000, and that's nothing to sneeze at in 1906 or so. And when you're raising a family of six children, she kind of got a bit upset, disappointed with her husband when she found out that I gave it away to a commission in the government that was trying to do some good things, I thought. So I gave that money away, and she thought that the Roosevelt's could have used that money pretty well, too. When you had mentioned a second ago, you were talking about the Panama Canal. Now, as you look back at your life prior to the Panama Canal, you, there's all these accomplishments that you've had, and they're gigantic, and all these obstacles that you overcome. And I feel like when you get to the point where you're going to build the Panama Canal, you're just reaching a level of absurdity. And what I mean by that is you just, you've done so many things that you're like, you know, apparently I can get away with anything. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut uh, through a country and make a river basically through a country, almost like testing yourself. Like, you know, let's see if I can cut through a country. Did you just feel like you <laughs> That's an interesting way to look at it. I don't think I've had anybody bring that to my mind. You, you now, one of the things about the Panama Canal, this is not something that just happened or just came. For decades, Europe had been looking at a way to bring the two oceans together. And of course, when you look at the map, Central America was the place for this to happen. I mean, it really couldn't happen anywhere. You couldn't do it at Brazil or wouldn't have been any sense in trying to do it in Argentina. The Andean Mountains would have something to say about that. Really, Central America was the only place. And the success of the Suez Canal by the British just uh, encouraged investment and such down in Central America. And Americans were as, as happy to see a, a canal anywhere. But I don't think for quite a while that Americans thought of a canal as being their canal, so to speak. The French actually were the first real strong group to come in and try to build a canal. There's always an argument about where to build it. Nicaragua really had the inside track over the other countries. And so that it took a sort of selling job by the French to get things moved that way. Finally, the country of Panama Boku is a leading country to have it. So it became right in that area where the French first started. The French poured millions of francs and lost them all. They had tens of thousands of people in that area 
working as laborers and tens of thousands of them died because it's a very unhealthy area. They had hundreds if not thousands of pieces of equipment left in the jungle to rot because they could not get the work done. At that time, Panama still belonged to Colombia. It didn't want to belong to Colombia, but it did. Panama wanted its own country as, without getting into a high history lesson, it came to pass where all of a sudden things developed where deals could be made and that the French would lose the right to build the Panama Canal. And, the, and in this case, I wanted it to be Americans who took over the building of the canal. Quite honestly, I thought Americans better than anybody else, even better than the British, could get that canal built. And as it turned out, it did work that way. We had to deal with government officials in both Colombia and in Panama. I, I tell people the simple thing was this, that when I became president and we started to really seriously look at the country of Panama, I knew something that apparently everybody else was forgetting, that Panama had already revolted 51 times against the government of Colombia. Hmm. 51 times they failed. I was smart enough to understand that at some point there would be a 52nd or a 53rd try, and at some point they might succeed. Now, we did not invade Panama. We did not fight the Colombians for it. We were just, let us say, nearby and ready to help if the situation turned in our favor. To do that, we had to make sure that our claim in place of France worked, which we did. And when it all came to pass, there was another revolution, and we were prepared to act. And we weren't the only person to act. Twelve countries recognized Panama immediately upon their revolution. The fact that their own army was filled was corrupt with men of greedy morals kind of put a kibosh, as they say, upon the Colombians' response to Panama. Once that was settled, and it has been settled, then we had to provide the means, the men, the capital, to start and build a canal. And that canal, of course, now has just been open after, what, eight years? And it is going to be a tremendous success for the United States of America. The question I thought at the heart of it, which is one that, that I as president dealt with perhaps more than any other, was the canal was going to be built. We didn't know who, we didn't know exactly where, but it was going to be built. Who did we want in charge of that canal once it was built? Would we want the Germans, who have a knack for creating and building things? Would we want Germany to be in charge of our canal? Would we want even France, who had already failed so many times? The English probably were the best at perhaps building a canal, but would we want even they to control a canal between the Atlantic and the Pacific? 
would we want anybody else to control a canal in which our battleships would surely need to use or at least benefit from using? This had to be an American yep. project. Had to be an American canal. So I was determined that we Americans would do it. Now, a lot of people laughed and said the same thing will happen to us that happened to the French. But I tell everybody, here's a part of America's greatness. We knew something that, he, that the Europeans didn't know. We were aware of something that even they, with their abilities, were not as aware of. We weren't building a canal. We weren't building a waterway. We were building a railroad. And nobody builds railroads better than the United States of America. That's interesting. We, we built that canal so it carried trains as needed to be. We just changed the course. We changed the lay of the land. But it was because we were building a canal that was really a railroad. And then, sense. of course, once we built it, we built it with water. The American Canal through Panama is just that. We control it, and we are the only country that could really control the free transit of every nation's ship. There would be no Russian and German and Japanese change. There would be no British and Chinese. We would operate it so it was benefit every nation. I, I think sometimes people forget that. Yeah. Interesting. President Roosevelt, I have so many things I want to ask you, and I'm just so thankful for all this time. But I, I want to ask you just a couple more questions, and then okay. I'm going to thank you because what a time this has been, and I'm so thankful for you. It's been a good time. It has been. There, I understand that you've hunted all over the world, and there was a time where you were trying to hunt bear and not having a lot of luck, and then I understand your aides tied up a bear for you to shoot. Is that how that went down? Partly. It, like all good stories, there's an element of truth in there. This is 1902, and I'd been invited to a Mississippi bear hunt. I, I had bears from everywhere, but I never had the famous black bear of Mississippi, and I thought I needed a, this type of bear for the collection that I had. So I went down to hunt bear. We were there, oh, let's see. I guess we were there, oh, four days or so, and uh, hunting was miserable. I did not see anything, not a deer, not a possum, a rabbit, nothing. It was just miserable hunting. Finally, near the last day, our guide, Mr. Holt Collier, who's a familiar guide in that area, he said, Mr. Roosevelt, why don't you and the gentleman with you, because there, there were several gentlemen on the hunt, said, go into that copse of trees, I'll take the dogs and flush a bear out. We thought this was a capital idea because it was hot in November in Mississippi. And we were there for some time and no bear, no dogs, no Mr. Hope call you. I finally got on my horse and rode back. I'd no sooner gone back than Mr. Collier comes out of the swampy area and in front of him, is a pack of snarling, yipping dogs, and in front of that dogs is a bear. It wasn't a, wasn't a grizzly bear. It wasn't a brown bear of Maine. It wasn't even a sleek, sharp black bear of Mississippi. No, this bear was rather 
small and short. It was torn and bleeding and ragged. Quite honestly, it looked like it needed a good meal. It didn't need to be brought down. It needed to be fed. But it had some spirit in it. The dogs, as they drove it into a watery area, kind of swampy land, the dogs lunged for it. Still had spirit, and it struck at least one of the dogs, sending it flying. As it did so, Mr. Collier struck the bear on the back of its neck with a rifle, stunned it seemingly, and immediately tied the rope around the bear's neck and tied it to a tree. They sent for Roosevelt, because by this time I was nearly back in camp. They come riding in and say, Mr. Roosevelt, we have your bear. Well, that's all I needed to hear. That's what I'd come to Mississippi for. I hopped on my horse and we rode off back to where the bear was tied in this little marshy area. I got off my horse and grabbed my gun and I took a look at that bear and I decided right then I'm not going to shoot that bear. There's no honor in this, no glory in this, no no strong manly effort to bring such a trophy home. No, I'm not going to shoot that bear. And with that, I got on my horse and rode back to the camp and uh, went back to Washington, D.C. just later, a little while later, and without the bear. Now, back in Washington, D.C., there was an artist named Clifford Berryman. He had been drawing some political cartoons, and he happened to draw some of myself. And he came upon probably one of those things that would be the father of good ideas. And he heard about my refusal to shoot the bear. And he, shortly thereafter, drew a cartoon with Theodore Roosevelt on one part of the panel and the bear on the other part of the panel. And not only did he do it one time, he did it again and again. He had stumbled upon, let's say, a gold mine. For every cartoon that he drew of Theodore Roosevelt had a bear in with it. Now, I and the bear might be walking down the street of Washington, D.C. together, or we might be sitting in a tree talking together, or we might be in the garden of the White House together. But every time you saw the Roosevelt, you saw this bear. And a funny thing happened. People liked that. They liked the image of this little bear. The more he drew this bear, the kind of different shape it took. His first cartoon actually did show me refusing to shoot that bear in Mississippi. It was a political cartoon. It had political implications to it, but it showed a small little worried bear and me refusing to shoot it. Well, as he drew that bear, the more he drew the bear, the rounder and softer and cuddlier and cute button eyes that it got, and it became a, an image all of itself. Now, up in New York City, this is, oh, this is about mid-December, F.A.O. Schwartz, the toy store, had about 300 Bavarian stuffed bears for sale, and the sales had been ragged, and as far as I know, they still had 300 Bavarian stuffed bears by this time before Christmas. Across the, the river in Brooklyn, Moore Schmitzkum of the Ideal Toy Company had 
the same problem. He had a couple of dozen. He couldn't sell them. But he came upon an idea, and he wrote a letter to the White House and said, Mr. Roosevelt, I have several bears for sale. I've been unable to sell them. I heard about your Mississippi bear, and I wonder if you mind having me put a sign in the window that said, for sale, Teddy's apostrophe bear. Well, I, that's how that came about. That's how that came about. I told him to go ahead. He put a sign in the window, sold out in a day. Oh, my FAO God. FAO Sports across the river put the same sign in their windows and told stores in Chicago and St. Louis and San Francisco. And within three days, they all sold out. That's incredible. And to this day, the most popular toy sold at Christmas is the teddy bear. Incredible. I made good mileage off of that bear. <laughs> I have two more questions. Uh, you had mentioned trophies, and uh, you had also mentioned the children, the Roosevelt children around the White yep. House. I picture the room where, well, even in the White House, I just picture your trophies everywhere. I picture stuffed bears <laughs> and stuffed animals and bones and elephant tusks. And then I see these kids running around. These kids have a reputation of being a lot of fun. I mean, what was that like with the kids and everything in the White House? Well, let us say I did not have my personal trophies at the White House for the most part. They were normally always at Oyster Bay. We did have animals. I think at one time we counted we had 23 pets in the White House, you know, very typical ordinary toads and frogs and salamanders and guinea pigs and dogs, of course, and cats and chickens and all that sorts of things. Yeah, we all have those. <laughs> well, I think it, if you've got a family of children, it's going to happen, perhaps. But I like animals, too. Uh, and But having the children is, is, well, they're a different group. And I think the Roosevelt's, had more fun in the White House than any other family had up to this time, probably will for as much as I know. Alice was sort of a star in her own way. She was what they call media darling. When she was 16 and 17, the papers were calling her Princess Alice. And of course she acted like a princess and uh, she was demanding, she wanted her own way at her own time, and she wanted things done that she wanted done when she wanted them done. She was a handful. She was, we caught her smoking, or trying a cigarette anyway, with, oh, Cassini, the daughter of Ambassador Cassini from Russia. And she was seen driving an automobile by herself, which we heartily disapprove of. No lady should drive a car by herself, of course. And then, well... She had other factors that made her one of a kind, at least to the press. The newspapers always were around here. And then, of course, the boys were either at school at Groton sometimes or out west with Seth Bullock learning things that we heartily approved of. But Quentin, the youngest, the boy who was born at the time of the Spanish-American War, why he was... He and his older brother, Archie, they, they were part of the White House gang, and they were always, I won't say in trouble, but let us say they were on verge of trouble because they were always looking for something fun to do, and whether it be snowball fights with the policemen at the White House to protect me, or they were telling ghost stories and monster stories during a, a ball 
important ball somewhere in in the White House. They also helped get the White House dogs in trouble. Oh, boys were part of what they called the White House Gang, which is a group of my boys and the sons of secretaries of the departments. And once, you know how straws come in these paper wrappings. And when you're a boy and you're sitting there bored waiting for dinner to be served or something at a restaurant, well, you take that paper up and you wad it up real good. And then you put it in your mouth and you get it nice and wet and hard. And then you put it in that straw and then you aim at your brother or your sister and let fly after a bit when you get their attention. Well, these boys learn quickly that, uh, that, that such straws make good spitwad shooters. And more than once, the White House staff found spitwads stuck to the pictures, the artist's pictures in the White House of presidents, past presidents. Uh, I think one time they came to my office and they said, Miss Roosevelt, you got to put a stop to this. And they said, we just cleaned 16 spitwads off the face of Andy Jackson. And we know who did that, of course. So <laughs> those are little things that, that the children often did to entertain themselves and to keep the White House staff pretty busy. President Roosevelt, I'll tell you, being a Roosevelt kid in the White House doesn't sound like a bad racket at all. So I'm going to ask you just one last question. And again, thank you so much. And before I ask this question, one of the things that I absolutely want to thank you for is all these national parks that you created and all this land that you saved, it still exists in our time. And there's a lot of land in the United States that is pristine and looks the way that you left it that would not have been there had you That's not excellent. done all that. Yes, and I, I thank you for that. And I guess the last thing I want to ask is in our time – things have become very easy. There's no need to hunt for food. And there's really a lot of people don't find need to even leave their homes. They'll spend their lives in their homes. They're not active. And it's a very easy time compared to what you would have done. There's a lot of convenience hmm. in this time. And one of the things that has always struck with me is you have spoken many times about your desire to live the strenuous life. And I wonder yes. if you could just share a quick thought about that and, and how it has worked for you in your life? Well, I can only speak for myself, of course. I believe that the strenuous life is the best sort of life to live. To live a life where every question you have has an answer seems to me to be kind of out of sorts with things. To lead a life in which you're not required to put out effort is not much of a life at all. I think to feel that convenience, for the sake of convenience, I can understand it, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I don't necessarily say you have to work at everything you do. Everything you do doesn't have to be work. Something that may seem like work is really a joy. There's a reason for being a part of a community or in government. There needs to be a purpose, and I do not think that sitting back, letting someone else live your life or do for you and yours what you can do for yourself, I do not think that is the right way to go. And we have to realize that not everybody 
fits everything. It is not a matter of everybody wanting to do the same thing or being able to do the same thing. But those things which you can do and should do, I believe you must do if for yourself, if for no other reason. Do not sit back and let someone live your life. Get out there and do the best you can with whatever it is that you choose to do. That's fantastic. I think we'll leave it there. Is there anything else that you would like to say as we wrap this up? Well, I, there probably is, but that's probably for another hour-long speech somewhere at some dinner. Given. I am glad to hear what you said about the uh, national parks. I admit, right from the, I'm not the father of the national parks. If any president is the father, that's, of course, U.S. Grant when he signed Yellowstone into being in 1872. I think what I did, if I may boast a little bit of myself, is that I think I and my administration, more than any other president, brought conservation and preservation to the forefront. We brought the idea of national parks and national monuments and national historic sites and national forests to the mind of the American people where the American people realize no matter what else we may think or who we may disagree with, we all agree that the national parks and national forests and national monuments is perhaps the best idea we ever had for the world, not just for ourselves, but for the world. And so if my legacy a hundred years from now should revolve around the national parks and the national forests and monuments and such. If that's the legacy of Roosevelt, then that's a pretty good legacy to have. I agree. President Roosevelt, thank you for your time. This has been a joy. Ah, uh, my pleasure. It has been bully, sir. Just bully. It's hard to imagine what the world might have looked like without Theodore Roosevelt. In our time, corporations have so much power, but in his time, companies like Standard Oil were absolute monopolies. Had somebody not stepped up all those years ago, somebody like TR, those companies would own everything right now. When the logging and mining companies were stripping the land, TR understood that we must utilize our resources to thrive as a nation, but some of them must be protected as well. If you've been to any of the national parks in the United States, it's likely that you have Teddy Roosevelt to thank for that experience. TR has always been one of my favorite historical figures, and not only am I thankful for the leadership and inspiration that he has left for every generation, but I am most thankful for one thing. Considering that he was capable of completing a 90-minute speech with a bullet in his chest and being willing to leave his office job to courageously fight on the front lines without fear and with so much at stake, I am most thankful that he was on our side. If he hadn't been, if he had been against us and been born in Russia or some other country, you can bet that his value to our nation would have been abundantly clear had he been working against us. Our world would have been a very different place had this once-in-a-lifetime leader and his relentless work ethic benefited some other nation. Thank you for listening to the Calling History Podcast. And remember, if you are enjoying this podcast and you don't subscribe, 
overnight, all of your forks are going to turn into spoons. Happy Halloween. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.